God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and through the world was made, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in his relationship with the Father, has made him known. You may be seated. Thank you for that reading, Dylan. And the kids are invited to join Kid Kelly for Kids Church today. This is our glorious Sunday, which is the second Sunday of Christmas. As we've talked about before, the 12 days of Christmas come after Christmas, uh, if you sing the song. And somehow, I think it was Nicole, Rosie has three books that contain all of the words to all the song. And so multiple times a day, there's, can I read, will you read me the 12 days of Christmas, knowing that you have to read a partridge in a pear tree many, many times. <laughs> On top of that, there. Uh, last night I was trying to figure out, this lady got a lot of birds, and it's no wonder that she's so pumped about five golden rings if she's got to take care of like 37 birds. Um, in the second day of Christmas, or in the second Sunday of Christmas, we get this glorious sort of um, reading from John's gospel, this opening, this prologue, and his prologue is much different than uh, the other beginnings of the Gospels, they start with sort of human history frames, and John starts with this sort of cosmic frame that sets it apart in ways that I think are marvelous. One of the, uh, I, I'm trying to think of how to, my mom called me on uh, Wednesday and she said, Matt, I want to read through the Bible this year again. Um, and she said, what, uh, what app would you use for that? And I told her the app that I would use, uh, but she said, well, I want to read through it chronologically. And I was like, oh, so you want like John 1, 1, right at the beginning of the Bible. And she hung up. Um, uh, but when you look at like, if you, uh, and I'm, some of you have seen this with, um, uh, the Marvel movies and other movies that sort of have been filmed non-chronologically is there's a way like you can watch them in order of all the events with the flashbacks coming first and this, that, and the other. I think for the Marvel one, it was you'd have to change DVDs like 47 times to watch it chronologically. Um, but what John does is reframes all of Scripture with his beginning. It's sort of in, in, in some sense we hear in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth is almost like a second or third act 
for John. John starts with, in the beginning was the word. And that changes things. Now, this is our last Sunday um, reading the Nicene Creed together. We'll go back to the Apostles' Creed. But when you look at the language of the Nicene Creed, the way that faith is expressed there, it comes right out of what John is trying to express here. And it wasn't easy for the church to figure all this out in its historical form on how you hold together the radical monotheism of the Old Testament and introductions like John's gospel and this one whom, whom they know as Jesus who is divine and God and yet not Yahweh. And so the word they come up with to hold those, those things together is Trinity. Um, but uh, this, this opening is, is, I think, just worth sitting with today. We've been doing the traditional lectionary readings. And the psalm this morning um, spoke uh, about how creation and God's redemptive purposes are sort of tied together in that snow um, falling in the, in the words there, that God is both through creation and through his mighty acts redeeming his people. Uh, the Jeremiah reading um, spoke of this restoration of God's people. And it's, it's important for us as Christians to, when we hear Israel, and we've talked about this during Advent, when we hear Israel in the scriptures to remember both what it meant historically and what these hopes mean for the church today. We are a church that is scattered in various forms as well. Um, there are multiple different churches throughout the world and throughout uh, our state and throughout our city. Um, We are a people in dispersion in ways too. And how is God going to knit that together is a good hope for us. And the Ephesians reason has this way, I mean, that one, we preached through Ephesians two or three years ago. I think that's almost one sentence um, in Greek uh, that that Lisa read for us. And it's just this Paul is is laying out for what does it mean to be adopted into Jesus Christ? What does it mean to move into this frame um, and not just adopted, but to become heirs, um, to become predestined, to become chosen ones? And I think we see that each of those three readings can spin out of this John reading. There's there's this notion in that there there are those who received the light when there are those who did not receive the light. And so we're going to sort of, I think for today, just walk through the prologue to John's gospel. Because for me, within the verses, the 18 verses we read, there's, um, it's a narratable universe that we get to inhabit. It tells the story of all that is and what happened in Jesus Christ, and it's a succinct way that we could think about for days. St. Augustine says that there was a Uh, a platonic scholar who said that it should be made into gold and put into the most prominent place in every Christian church. Um, Now, he's in love um, with with this logic of it, that that the logos became flesh. Um, But even here, he's seeing that, like, something is being expressed here that is beyond just simple um, parlance. It's, It's beyond in some ways. Um, And so what we want to do is just sort of walk through that today, to hear it from beginning to end. And and there's a commentary um, by Frederick Dale Bruner that I think expresses it uh, very well in a linear sort of way. Uh, And so we'll use his sort of nine images. Um, The word in pre-incarnation is his first sort of one, and this is verses one through two. It's very far. (laughs) <laughs> the word, and that's what I mean, it's, it's compact in a way 
that's beyond. The second thing I wanted to say about it before we started too is it's, it's poetic in form almost. Or it, it's beyond in, in its form. It's, it expresses something deeper than perhaps we can. And there are truths that we say in prose. Um, uh, somebody's going to know this better than I. Objects fall at 9.8 meters per second squared. Is that right? Per second per second squared. Um, so it'd be a lot slower at the one I said. Uh, <laughs> on the moon they fall at. No, I think it's at three feet on the moon. Never mind. The point is there are objects we express in prose, and they tend to be very literal, and they tend to be um, dynamic. You have nice eyes might be a way of saying this too. But there are, there are things where we heighten our language up to the poetic, to the, to the sung, to others, because they make different truths clearer. So in the classic first grade way, you say, or whenever you learn similes, your eyes are like diamonds. It expresses not something that's able to, they are not diamonds, but they are like diamonds. What John does in his prologue and what Paul does in that beginning passage in, in um, Ephesians um, is that they have these ways of expressing these things that is almost like a worked up way. It's not simple prose of like, this is the way it is, but it's expressing something deeper. And when you get to that point, you tilt towards things that could be sung. It's not... Um, and there's, there's some evidence that this is an early Christian hymn, this opening of John's gospel. It's something they sung when they got together. Philippians 2 is another one of those where we think that they were sung when they got together. Uh, a portion of Hebrews that these are actually hymns that they've put together to express something of what is being captured and expressed in Jesus Christ. And so it begins with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This is thick with meaning here. In the beginning was the word, first off, and that word was with God, and the word was God. Now I mentioned um, the Greek word, logos, uh, is, is, has two sort of, at least two different sort of meanings we can take it at. One is the way that that, that person, St. Augustine, is talking about it, in the way that the logos is this ultimate philosophy in which reality is expressed. This probably speaks to as well as Western people um, that it's logic that is being expressed in some ways, that the ultimate logic of all that is is coming out of this. Um, there's, a, there's a quote that I like to use from Stephen Hawking that I think expresses this well. However, if we discover a complete theory, it should be in time be understandable by everyone, not just by a few scientists. Then we shall all, philosophers, scientists, and ordinary people, be able to take part in the discussion of the question of why it is we and the universe exist. If we find and answer that question, it would be the ultimate triumph of human reason, for then we should know the mind of God. For him, the logic of which holds everything together would be accessible to everyone, which I love that, that notion that he thinks it would be plain to us. In the same way that what John is expressing at the beginning of his gospel is for everyone. He's not trying to say, well, if you get your PhD in this, then you'll understand. But it's spoken in a way that the early church is made up of people who um, are barely literate at times, and they're able to grasp this notion of this divine one. He says it's going to be accessible to everyone, but also that we would be able to converse about it in some ways. We would know the mind of God. Now, for Christians, John 1 expresses 
the logic that he's talking about here. This is the, the order of all things being expressed. But Logos, and I, I won't spend a lot of time on it today, also tilts back to the book of Proverbs. In the Proverbs, there's wisdom that creates the world. And wisdom is a more dynamic thing in, in ancient imaginations and ours than logic is too. It's almost as it's artfully expressed. Logic is the, um, the compounding interest of it all, whereas the wisdom of which it expressed is sort of the why, or uh, the how rather than the why. It's, it's, it's expressed in different forms. And so what John is starting off with is the, either the essence of all things or the order of all things was with God and was God. That's the first sort of image that we have. And this is, you know, if you follow along, this is what he calls the long view. The second one um, is the word from creation to the cross. And this is the big picture as we see it to the resurrection church. All things were made through him and apart from them, not a single thing was made. What has been made was in union with him and there was life. And the life was the light of the human race, and this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not put it out. What we hear here is this notion that all things are made through Christ, that that word expressed um, the way that God orders the universe in the book of Genesis is through the word. Um, And so it quite quickly becomes for the early church that the word expressed is Christ. And so the word is what all things are made through, and all things were made in union with him, and there was life, and the life was the light of the human race. This is, uh, you almost got Genesis 1 through 3 here, being made in the image of God, and then, um, uh, and how we find our life in him. And yet there was darkness, but the darkness did not overcome it, and the darkness did not put it out. And so in this next section, it expresses all from that origin to that darkness that comes in sin to, that, um, to the cross, that there is darkness that rivals light when it comes into the world. And the light does not put it out. Now, one of the things um, uh, that's up on our webpage, if you, if you look around, we have a why we don't have social media as a church policy. And there's this quote from St. Athanasius, um, uh, and all of the, uh, this text on the Incarnation was linked in the email a couple weeks ago. But what it says is, The Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and to teach suffering men. For the one whom wanted to make a display, the thing would have been just to appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and teach, the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed them and to be manifested according as they could bear it, not by violating uh, the value of the divine appearance, uh, by exceeding the capacity to receive it. Two things here is Christ comes as light into the world. The first is he doesn't come to overpower in this first appearance. There is still darkness. And his way of of mitigating the darkness is to create a people of the light, but not to completely stamp it out at this point. And what I think what St. Athanasius captures here and why it's linked to why we don't use a lot of social media as a church is because image is how our culture is driven. If you were to come as a god today, you would pick a glorious image that would be Instagrammed by everyone. 
Um, you would pick a form that would overwhelm. The news would cover it nonstop. It would just be over and over again, the glorious, dazzling image in which you appeared. And yet the light that comes and dwells with us comes to heal and to teach suffering people. It doesn't need to overwhelm then if that's the case. But it comes in vulnerability so that it can be understood, so that it can heal and teach. The grander the display, the more distance would grow between us and it. And it would no longer be able to heal and teach and instruct us, but only to overwhelm and sort of extinguish us. The close picture that comes next is the word of John the witness. He's not called John the Baptist in um, John's gospel. He's called uh, just John. Uh, There was a man from God whose name was John. He came to be a witness to bear to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself uh, was not the light. He came to bear witness to the light. John um, knows who he isn't here. We've talked about that when we were going through uh, Advent, um, and he's one who bears witness to this light. I, I'll move on from this one quick with this quote, which I think about all the time, um, and it's a slight towards apologetics as we do it in the modern world. Christians are often tempted, particularly in this time we call modern, to say more than we know. We are so tempted because we fear we do not believe what we say we believe. So do we try to assure ourselves that we believe what we say we believe by convincing those who don't believe what we believe that they really believe what we believe once we believe is properly explained? It's a sentence you can diagram. Um, As a result, we end up saying more than we know because what we believe, or better, what we do, cannot be explained but only shown. The word we have been given for such a showing is witness. Now, going back to that long sentence, is that um, I quote C.S. Lewis uh, kindly 90% of the time. So here's one time where I think maybe he got it wrong, Um, or at least wrong for apologetics in the modern world. Uh, In the beginning of Mere Christianity, he talks about this uh, piano at the center of the universe, and the piano is sort of how morality is tuned to us. And so how he would ask somebody the way people use this in apologetics is, well, you believe that there's good, How do you know there's good? There must be somebody who tuned the piano to make it good. We are tempted because we fear we do not believe what they say we believe. So we try to assure ourselves that we believe what we say we believe by convincing those who do not believe they believe what we believe when what we believe has been properly explained. We all agree that there's good, so just believe in Jesus on top of the good. We all believe that this morality will just add the divine tuner to it. And what we end up doing is convincing people to be believers like we're believers, but we're not believing robustly. We're saying, well, there's common things that we all express together. But the point with John, the one who's a witness to the light, and what we are supposed to be is not what we believe is always explained or maybe even primarily explained but it's shown. We, uh, in some sense, are able to reflect a a dim vision of the light that God has shined in the world in Jesus Christ out into the world as a church. The word we have been given for such a showing is witness. 
that we become living witnesses to what God has done. It's not just explaining what we've done. This might perhaps be between logic and wisdom as what becomes incarnate too. And I don't want to say that one's lost or this, that, and the other. It's, uh, I won't apologize for picking on C.S. Lewis once in my life. The word of revelation to the unwelcoming world, the sad picture. True light who enlightens every human being was in the process of coming to the world. He was already in the world, though the world, through the, the world was made through him, but the world did not recognize him. So he came down into his human home, but his family of human beings did not welcome him. This is uh, Bruner's translation of this, but, but that Christ is coming to those whom who he has made, who have their life and being in him, who are made through him, and they do not welcome him. And this I've always taken as sort of like, well, Israel really messed that up. Um, but in the Greek, it's all of us. And there's this notion, I think, that light as, as this sort of purifying agent when Christ comes into the world, it burns, and we would like to stamp it out. That light comes in this way that sort of reveals. Um, in the word that um, Simeon spoke to Mary is that Christ will reveal many people's thoughts. And that's scary if you're honest with yourself. And so it's easier to flee from the light. It's easier to attempt to extinguish light than to welcome it. And so he came to a group of people, all of us, who did not welcome him. Which moves to a glad picture, the word of the welcoming children of God. But however it did welcome them, he gave the privilege of becoming the very children of God to those who are simply believing his person. They were born not by confidence of bloods, nor by the will of flesh, nor by the willpower of a strong person, but by the sole power of God. That God is making a people in the world. And, and Bruner, helpfully, um, as he goes through this, says that they, the ways they were not born speaks to that they weren't born biologically, they weren't born psychologically, they weren't born spiritually, but they were born of God. That there's something beyond in, these, in this passage of the welcoming world that God comes into. That he comes as this one who, being born of God, is, is, is being transclipsed to a different place. Um, in the Ephesians reasons, it's those predestined to become children of God through adoption. It's this um, word from God. It's not um, a joke about uh, the, the opening of religion today, um, but it's within the church, and it's sort of the spirituality. As you just tack on spirituality to your life, and, and sometimes that spirituality may be Christian, and sometimes that spirituality is um, a pale comparison to actually Near East religions, but in America, we take everything and make it less spicy, I think is what they say in those cultures. Point being is, and what God is doing through Jesus Christ in adopting a whole new family isn't just tacking on something to your life. He's placing you in a different plane. He's bringing you into a different world. You're coming out so much different than when you came in. And so it's not just attaching the spiritual thing to us, but becoming people of the living one. The closest picture of all, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Eugene Peterson's translation, this is the word became, uh, the word moved into the neighborhood. 
which is I like, is, is that Christ became close to us. He neighbored us. This is why we neighbor other people, by loving them the way that he loved us. But the, the Greek word here is, is also challenging. The word became flesh is uh, sarx, S-A-R-X. Um, and the Hampton, if he were here, uh, there was a translation that took half the references to sarx um, that were negative and, and called them sinful behaviors or sinful desires, and the other ones they named flesh. And part of it is because this word is used a lot of times in the New Testament negatively. Paul says, don't be dominated by the flesh. Christ takes on the flesh. Quickly, we can miss that in be taking on human form, human form was in much of the ancient world not a thing to be trusted. The shock that the word, the logic, the wisdom, all, all thing, takes on human flesh, which is likely to fail, which is mortal, which is often controlled by passions exceeding itself, is the grand news that John sort of centers on here. And, and the rest of the story, the Gospel of John, will trace what does it mean that the Word becomes flesh. Now this is, uh, when we re recite the Nicene Creed, this is the exact thing it's pushing on uh, back against, is that there was a Gnostic sect in the early church period that said, Jesus at his baptism is inhabited by the Spirit, the Logos, the Wisdom. And when he says it is finished on the cross, he gives that up. And so that in his being flesh, he just sort of um, inhabits a body for a time. But he is never embodied. The early church, and this is why Nicaea is so beautiful, rejects that. Christ must be embodied. Christ must come in the flesh. Christ must be here in this way. And you can't read the Gospel of John or any of the Gospels coherently without accepting that God became one of us. Athanasius will talk about how human image is restored through that. Um, as, as Protestant and Western Christians, we see the gift of what God done in Jesus Christ on the cross. And that is true. Eastern Christians generally see it more in the incarnation and that God restores the image of what human, humanity is. So you get fathers like Irenaeus who says, and this is, uh, don't buy this on a coffee mug, maybe, but the, the glory of God is man fully alive, um, is what he's saying is that God, as he dwells in glory amongst us, restores the image of what humanity is. He becomes that all over again. The, the quote that was shared with Athanasius on the incarnation, the email, said that when a painting becomes marred, you have the option of tossing the whole painting and starting again, which is what many Gnostics and early Christians wanted to say that Jesus did, that when God came again, he tossed all that came before it and made something new. But what the Christian said is actually what Christ does in his incarnation is comes and sits in the place again. And humanity is redrawn. Humanity is renewed through that. The word becomes flesh in some way opens up the possibility to receive the good news of the cross. Um, cross or incarnation is not a contest I'd ever want to get into. Um, but I think we forget incarnation in the West. Uh, that's why I bring it up. If, if we forgot, if I was in the East, I'd be lecturing them on forgetting the dignity of the cross. God prays that I never goes to, to the east. Um, the word of John, the witness again. 
the, John speaks again. This is the one I was telling you about, the one coming after me who actually ranks above me because he came way before me. The John speaks now finally, and he tells them about this one who is more powerful. And in, in John's gospel and all the other gospels, John sort of has this origin that makes him the ultimate pointer to what Christ is doing and who Christ is. He makes that revealed for us. The word of the grateful church, the glad picture again. Because out of his fullness, we all have seen one grace after another grace. While the wall was a gift through Moses, the deep grace and the deep truth came through the Messiah. This is the word of people who are receiving the grace from God. That as light comes into the world and we want to become near to this light, what it takes is God's grace for us and this healing that comes through it and to be able to see the truth of what comes in the Messiah, Jesus. To be able to see what's coming there. And the last, which is the whole picture, is sort of the summary um, no one has ever seen God, but the only one who is the Son, who, himself, who is himself God and is in closest relations from the Father, has made him known. That ultimately in what Jesus we're going to see is a picture of God revealing himself to us in a form that we can understand that teaches and heals us. And so as we return to the Sermon on the Mount um, in, in a week or two, um, to hear that. What Christ is teaching us, when we came from reading the book of Deuteronomy and going into the Sermon on the Mount, Christ becomes a Moses who is a, a um, person interpreting and explaining and teaching us the law, and that's true. But as we return, Christ also becomes one who is God speaking and revealing deep knowledge and grace and truth to us. These things aren't merely just a, a reiteration of what's come before, but the revealing of how God lives and acts and is in the world. This is the deep truth of the joys of Christmas, the life that God has given us. This is the, the truth that God has called us into. And so in the words of the psalm this morning, praise the Lord. Let us pray. God, you have gifted us the prologue to John's gospel. In it, we hear of divine mysteries, of your word and wisdom and logic coming amongst us, of you revealing yourself near to darkness. God, as a light, darkness within us tries to put you out. Darkness within the world recoils at what you have done. And yet it is for us to welcome you, to welcome the light into this church and into our lives so that we may become witnesses to the light in the world and point to what it means that the word became flesh dwelt among us, moved into the neighborhood, and how that, in your glorious way, changes everything. Be near to us now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.
That's in the wrong spot. Let us confess 